I want to ask you a question this morning. You know, sometimes I ask you guys questions. I know I can be guilty of this. Um, you know, I'll ask you a trick question. You know, I'm trying to trick you or get you some way. And this is, God is my witness. This is not a trick question. This is a real question. And uh, no one has gotten it. And it's not, not super easy per se. But I want you to answer it as best you can. Just throw some answers out here. And I, I, could, I could list other names. I want you to know when this is that I, on this list. But I'm going to ask you this question. What do Charles Lindbergh, Winston Churchill, Ted Turner, Mark Zuckerberg, and Angela Merkel have in common? Say it again. Guts. Yeah, that's good. What else? I could list other names. There are other names that could be on this list, but what what do they have in common? What I'm looking for. Say it again. Lots of money. Innovative, pioneers, all of this good, all of it true. Now, what I'm looking for that would connect them is this, and you'll get it when I say it. They are all Time Magazine people of the year, okay? Charles Lindbergh, 1927, was the first. And then Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, she's the most recent. And uh, the editors of Time Magazine, quite frankly, are at work right now, because that's who determines this. They're working on it because they always put that out on December 7th. The Time Magazine person of the year. Honestly, I don't know if it's an honor or if it's an indictment, quite frankly. Because, you know, when you look at the, the past honorees, so to speak, I mean, you got people like Adolf Hitler, Stalin, uh, just brutal despots that are on that list. I, I do think this, at least for many of us, that magazine cover takes an oversi- it takes on an oversized influence, in, in my opinion, of, of what makes a person great. Because when you see it, you just, you know, most people look at it and go assume that is the greatest person of this year. That's what greatness is, what they did, but it's not always so. But what if we actually had a legitimate person of the Year Not determined by editors from time, but what if God himself said, here's the person of the year. And if he did that, I think we would all, we would all go, well, that's worth considering. I mean, I, I, I really need to consider that person's life and how they lived and why they did what they did and what they, what they did. Wouldn't you say if God said this was the person? Well, we actually have that. And it's a, you're going to get this. This is not exactly, you know, perfectly in line, but you'll understand when I say it. It's actually a bigger than person of the, the year. God actually gives us a, a person of all time, so to speak. I'm going to move Jesus from the category because I'm going to go, Jesus, of course. Well, no, actually, uh, uh, not the God-man, but just a man. Luke 7, 28, Jesus says this, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than who? If you know, John. How about that? No one greater than John the Baptist. Uh, he's speaking to that, you know, locust eating, you know, desert dwelling baptizer out there in the desert. And when we study the Gospel of Mark, we actually begin with John. How about that? But we don't even get out of the first chapter. And verse 14 of chapter 1 says this. And John was taken into custody. And guess what? End of John. We never hear from John again. 
want you to think about what Jesus is saying by who he didn't name. Because I would think this. And John, by the way, is in the category of prophets, Old Testament prophets. And in that category, no one greater. But I would have thought he might have said, you know, there's no one greater than Abraham. Or there's, you know, there's no one greater than David. Moses. I mean, there's just so many we could name. But he picks John, who... Who's not even in the story anymore. Mark, we don't hear from him again. But he is referenced. In other words, we, we, you know, we don't hear from John himself as we did in the beginning of the book. But he's referenced. And he's referenced in a section that is so odd to me. Because it simply describes his death. And Mark puts it in a place that, again, strikes me as odd. If you have your Bibles, open to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. This is where we're picking up in our study through Mark's gospel today. I want you to know before we read it, it is a gross and grisly story. It is sexual, sensual, dirty, ugly. Uh, It's just not good at all. I just want to prepare you for that because that's our story today. This is not like the, the, the happy after Thanksgiving message per se. It's going to be a rather... Uh, challenging and, and, and hard message, quite frankly. Um, while it's as dark as it is, I want to suggest it has something to say, because of who it's talking about, about greatness. What it is, and what it means to live a life that is significant in God's eyes, that matters for eternity. Now, the way I've decided to teach this is I'm just going to do a walking commentary. So I'm going to just take a section, walking commentary. Take a section, walking commentary. Then we're going to come back in the back end and ask ourselves, okay, here's John's story. Here's our story. How do they intersect? By the way, do you know in every story in Mark's gospel, do you know who the main character is in every story? This is not a trick question either. It's obvious to us. It's Jesus. Guess what? There's one story in Mark's gospel where Jesus isn't the main character. It's this one. It's John. And if Jesus' life is meant to redefine our own, I want to suggest that Mark has placed this here to say John's life is meant to refine our own as well. Now, by way of context, Michael took us from chapter 6, verse 1 to 13 last week. The 12 are sent out two by two. Uh, Jesus basically says, and Michael said it this way, Go do what you have seen me do, and do so trusting me, relying upon me. I mean, they had no food, they had no money, and they went and they extended the work of the kingdom. We could say it that way. I want you to keep that in mind. Now, oddly, right here is where Mark jumps in with the story of John's death. Here's the first heading. This is verses 14 to 16. Uh, I'm going to call it a king's guilty conscience. That's what this is about, a king's guilty conscience. Follow along in your Bibles as I read it. Verse 14, and King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. Heard of all that Jesus was doing, all that his disciples were doing, all this healing and exorcisms. And the people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah, Old Testament prophet. And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. He's an Old Testament prophet that did the miracles. Key key passage. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, 
has risen. Everyone else is saying, well, it's John, it's Elijah, it's a prophet. But Herod is saying, the one I killed, the one I beheaded. The eyes in the emphatic position to say, I killed him, that's who's risen. I killed him, that's who's risen. It's hitting Herod, you see, in a way different way than everyone else as he hears about this. Now, there are a ton of Herods in the Bible, and I get confused. And, and I hope to, to not get you confused, but to clarify just a bit without going into too much detail who these guys are. There is, first of all, Herod the Great. Let's start at the top of the family tree, so to speak. Herod the Great. Okay? Now, Herod the Great was around when Jesus was born. Okay? So when the wise men came to Herod, and Herod said, Hey, by the way, if you find the king... Would you come back and tell me? Because I want to go worship him. What did he really want to do to the king? He wanted to kill him. I'm telling you, when you think of the word Herod, and there's all these other Herods, uh, it means son of a hero, uh, they are, it's nasty. It is a downright evil empire, so to speak. Um, Herod the Great, okay? So now we've got him. He was at the birth of Jesus. Well, when he was dying, Rather than give his rulership to one son, this is a guy who had sons killed because he didn't like a son or didn't want to give... You know, this is just brutality galore. Uh, He decided he's going to break it up and give uh, a fourth to four sons. That's why he's literally... This Herod is called a tetrarch. He's got a fourth of the kingdom. So he divides it in fourths. And the Herod we're talking about here, you all, is not Herod the Great, but it's one of his sons, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas had the region on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and then it went down the eastern side all the way down to the Dead Sea, this little strip of land. That was the, the one-fourth that he ruled. He was just like his father, immoral, powerful, debased. Uh, Herod thinks that the powers expressed through Jesus have, are, are, are that John has been baptized, and it's the one that he has beheaded. And, and Mark is showing us this, that his conscience is operative. Can I say a word about our conscience? Uh, men and women, our conscience is a gift of God. Our conscience is that, it's that voice within us that says, when you've done something wrong, uh, I'm guilty. And that's a good thing because you can then make it right. Mark is showing us that his conscience is operative. It's working just like God intends a conscience to work. But Herod's response to his conscience, it makes all the difference in the world. We'll see that as we move through it. So a king's guilty conscience. Now he's going to go into the backstory. So now you've got to understand he's reaching back in time and going, this is what happened. Mark is saying this is how John ended up beheaded. Look at verses 17 to 20. This is the king's immoral marriage. So an immoral marriage. Verse 17, for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him, against John, and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. This is important. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening. He listened gladly. 
Herod Antipas, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, and then there's these other Herods that are ruling these four brothers. Herod Antipas, our Herod, goes and visits Herod Philip, his half-brother. He's on a visit to see his brother. And while there, he falls in love with his brother's wife, Herodias. He convinces Herodias to leave Philip, come come back with him to Galilee and marry him, which meant he had to divorce his wife, who was the daughter of a king, so that he and Herodias could be married and wed. And to John the Baptist, do you think John was going to look at Herod and go, I get it, I get it, you fell in love, it's okay, you love each other, it's going to be fine, kids will be... No, 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 what would John the Baptist say? What did he say? That's wrong. (laughs) That is not God's character or the nature of marriage. And by the way, I would suggest he also said, repent, because he could hardly say anything without, you know, you're wrong, repent and turn back to God. Now, it's really nutty how this family is arranged, because Herod Antipas now marries his half-brother's wife, and by the way, Herodias is actually, by blood, Herod Antipas's niece. They're related. So he's marrying his niece and his, his brother's wife. It's adulterous. It's incestuous. It, and it really made me think of that old Ray Stevens song, I Am My Own Grandpa. If you guys know that story, it's just nutty. Like, you know, I've, I, I married a widow and she had a grown daughter and the grown daughter married my dad and now my dad's my son and my son. You know, it's just nuts. And it comes to the end, he said, I'm my own grandpa. You know, I'm a... This stuff is going crazy through here. And he marries his niece and his brother's wife. Now, he used to love, quite frankly, gladly listened. He enjoyed listening uh, to, to, to John. And when he did, he would be perplexed. And I want you to think about this. this he was perplexed because we go, it's not, a good, it's not good to be perplexed. Perplexed means to be at a loss, to be uncertain, to be in doubt. And I want to suggest there's something here that, that we, can, we can draw from for ourselves to say, well, let's think about being perplexed in the context of that message that John would give. Because when he talked to John, I assure you, they did not talk about sports. They did not talk about weather. John is going to speak of the Word of God. And it's going to include repent in it. And so think about being perplexed. He was perplexed, which means to be uncertain, to be in doubt, to be unsure. Lest you think it's a bad thing. When you and I are are going away from God and we're called to repent, to turn back to God, which we all do. You know, repentance is a turning from going in one direction. It's a turning and going in the opposite direction back to God. And oftentimes in life, you know, we will not make that repentant turn. Because when we're going this way, we're going, you know, this is what gives me life. Oh, I'm fulfilled by that. I feel empty inside, but that will fulfill me. And we grab it. And we go through life like this, choosing everything except God to be our greatest satisfaction. And as we go this way, these things actually fulfill us and satisfy us. And it's not until we finally reach for something for the hundredth time and we go, it's empty. And we reach for something for the thousandth time and we go, that's not doing what it used to do for me. And we get stopped in a place where we're perplexed. We're uncertain. It's not what I thought. We're in doubt. And you see, right at this moment, I believe, even for Herod, this is a measure of God's mercy upon him to go, that's not it. This is why you're confused. 
turn to me and find life in me and me alone. And I say that to say to you, when you find yourself perplexed and uncertain, and this isn't what I thought, it's your invitation, it's our invitation many times to repent, you see, to repent God's mercy and to come back toward him. A guilty conscience, an immoral marriage, and then let's get this last thing before we apply it. A queen's savage revenge. A queen's savage revenge. Look at the story picking up in verse 21. Longest part of the story. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. All the big shots in town, including the military big shots. And when the daughter of Herodias, she had a daughter from her marriage to Philip, name was Salome or Salome, herself came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Hmm. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths, because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples, these are John the Baptist's disciples, heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. A strategic day. See that in verse 21? It's, it, it's literally can be translated an opportune day. Uh, who, who was it an opportune day for? Who, who saw their opportunity? Who in the story? Say it. Herodias, you see, y'all, she wanted him dead. And I get it, because he pointed the finger at her, you know, and said it's wrong. And she literally wanted to kill him. But she couldn't, it says. And you know why she couldn't? Because Herod put him in jail. How about that? Because he thought, as it says, he could keep him safe there. As long as he's in jail, she can't kill him. And I like listening to him. And now, an opportunity arose. And she sent her daughter in to dance, which you would not... Normally, you're not going to see the, 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 the royal daughter do a dance like this. It might be a, a prostitute or a slave would go in and do this dance. It is, all scholars would agree, mostly agree, that it was, a, it was a sensual dance. There are no men in the room. She had to go outside to talk to her mom. Uh, and Herod's making a big, huge boast. You know, I'll give you half the kingdom. He doesn't even, he doesn't even own the kingdom to give it. It's just he's saying, I, you know... I'll do whatever you want. You know, he's making this, this outrageous promise to her. Uh, it's a banquet, and this is just a gross detail that it, his head comes on a platter because she wanted it, Herodias wanted him served up just like a meal. Isn't that what she's doing? You guys are eating all these plates. Here's the ham, here's the turkey, and grossly, here's his head. You know, this is how powerful I am. There's nothing noble in Herod keeping his word. Don't read it and go, well, you know, that guy... 
You know, he, he made a promise and he, no way, he made a bad promise and he didn't have to do that. And he was only sorry for himself and what he was going to lose. He was not sorry for John and he was only saving his own face, you see, by doing this. This wasn't a noble act like, oh, I'm going to keep my word and, and do this. Absolutely not. We have no last words from John. You know, oftentimes you get last words of great people. Here's the greatest and you got no last words from him, just that his few disciples took his headless body and put it in a grave and so went the greatest man born of a woman end of story it's just kind of leaves you ugh well then so much wrong with this story honestly there's such demonic evil in it certainly but I want you to step back let's step back from it and I want you to take uh, a, a theological uh, view of the story, uh, a, a biblical view that says, okay, big picture, what's, what's the story saying? What's it showing us? Now, I'm going to read some statements, and this, I hope, will, will, will help all of us you know, kind of see exactly what Mark is saying with this story. Notice how the story goes. The multitude at the banquet, quite frankly, deserved death. The only one who doesn't deserve death dies. Uh, Herodias and her daughter, they, they scheme to, to get revenge. And then there's the only one who tells the truth is killed. The ruler who could have spared his life, that ruler chooses to listen to the crowd and put the one who is innocent to death. The unrighteous continue the banquet while the righteous one is laid in a tomb. Now, whose death is Mark showing us that John the Baptist's death is foreshadowing? Easy answer. Whose death is it? But we got to see that, you all. See, we got to say, wait, wait. This isn't just a man's death. He's the forerunner of Christ, not just in time preparing the way, but now he's showing this is how he's going to die. And by the way, this message is going to come over and over again because the disciples just can't get it that he's going to die. You see what I'm saying? This is going to happen all the way through the rest of Mark. And so we get this foreshadowing. Thank you, Mark, that shows us John the Baptist is showing them and us how Jesus himself will die. But there's, there's so much more in the story, much to ponder. I'm going to offer us two ways <clears throat> to think about how this story intersects with ours and what it is inviting us to consider. And I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to think about it in this way. Um, and this is going to happen all through Mark's gospel. The disciples are following Jesus. Jesus is going, they're following. Jesus is going, they're following. Jesus is going, and they're following. And Jesus will stop all through this gospel, and Jesus will be a fork in the road. And he'll say, you're going to either choose this, or you're going to choose this. And I think this is a fork in the road. And so you and I have a choice to make. Today. Now. And I'm going to frame the choice like this. That, that you and I, if we're going to follow the servant king, you and I can choose the birthday party path. Or you and I can choose the prison cell path. And we stand here and, and, and we, we get to choose which we'll, which we'll walk down. 
Now, I'm going to spend more time on the birthday party path than the other, because the other is more self-explanatory. But let me talk about the birthday party path, if I may. Okay, Everybody with me, what we're looking at? We're looking at the birthday party path. You're going to choose the path of Herod here. The most distinctive uh, part of this story, if I may say, when it comes to what it means to you and I, is not the debauchery, it's not the grossness, it's not the... Just the awful, evil things that are, you know, that are expressed here. Those things are symptoms, you all. There's something else in the story that happens that's way more, I don't, I don't want to say more evil because this is so evil, but it's way more destructive, if I can say it that way, than even these things we read. When I say that, what I'm trying to say is the birthday party path is the path you choose when you actually, you like listening to the Bible. And you like even studying it and getting to know more about it. You, you like talking about words of truth. And you like it when people tell you spiritual truths and you hear those things and you talk with others about them. You like it all, but you never personally trust, rely upon those words of truth. You just like hearing it and learning a little bit more. But you never move to the place where you trust that it's true for you in such a way that it requires you to make decisions that cost you, that require a step of faith, you see. I'm trying to say is that's what Herod was doing. He loved listening to John. Tell me more. That's interesting. What else? He never lived it, you see. Some of us are really good listeners. There are a lot of times I'm just a great listener, but I'm not trusting that truth. I'm going to tell you something. When we live like that, and all of us do to some degree, I know, we actually put ourselves in grave, grave danger. Uh, Alexander McLaren's 1800s preacher, Scottish. I like looking at some of his stuff. Sometimes he can say things in such a, a, a beautiful, clear way. He speaks about this when he writes, quote, Herod no doubt thought that his delight in listening to John went some way to atone for his refusal to get rid of Herodias. That's pretty good. Figured, you know, I listen a lot to good stuff. I listen a lot to the truth. And that's going to help me some since I'm not getting rid of Herodias. Some of us think ourselves good Christians because we assent to truth. And even like to hear it. Provided the speaker suits our tastes. Glad hearing only aggravates the guilt of not doing. It is useless to admire John if you keep. Herodias, end quote. We dare not read the story, y'all. We can't read this story and go, ugh, I am, thank, thank, thank you, God, that I'm not Herod or Herodias. I'd never do that. Oh, my goodness. Listen, I'm not saying this just to say it. I'm saying it because it's true. I am a breath away. I am a step away from a choice and a foolish decision. That they make. We all are just one step away from that. And you say, well, 
I'd never ask, I would never order someone's head cut off. Of course you wouldn't. But hang around God's word, hear it, but never trust it. And we all put ourselves in a position not to tell someone else, go cut their head off. But quite frankly, we get ourselves in a position where we cut our own head off. We make a choice, cut our own head off and hand it to someone on a platter. You know what I'm saying when I say that. I don't mean to be gross, but I'm saying we, we destroy our lives. There, listen, there, I, I'm not over-exaggerating this. Listen, to, the, listen to, 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 to this part of the story of, a, of another gospel. This is Luke's account of Christ's life. It's later, it's toward the end that we've still got Herod that we're dealing with. And I just want you to listen, listen to, to the irony, the, the, the lack of emotional awareness in this man. <laughs> you know, Luke 23, 8-9 says this, Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time. That's like someone kills your best friend, and later in life they go, I've been looking forward to seeing you. It's nuts that he would feel this way. He's utterly blinded, you see, to his depravity. He wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Oh, Jesus, it's a... It's awesome to see you. Show me something. Hey, tell me something that I hadn't heard because I know a lot. Of, John told me a lot, but tell me something else. Do so. This is just weird, you know, that he's this way. And here's the, here's the hammer comes down. And Herod questioned Jesus at some length. But Jesus answered him, nothing. Nada. Hey, Jesus, tell me some more about what... You see, it was too late. His conscience was perplexed with John. Repent. Let me tell you, his conscience was dead by the time Jesus was literally in front of the man. This is what happens when you hear the word, hear the word, sing the songs. We don't trust it. Rely upon it. If you choose the if you choose the birthday party, just know that there will come a day when there will be nothing left to hear. Okay. How about, you know, I don't know, it's not it's like not, not great path either. How about the prison cell? <laughs> okay, that doesn't look great, but how about the prison cell? Well, keep in mind, and again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that other than to say, take account of what that is. Because what it is, is you'll know, okay, if you're going to choose... Uh, choose the prison cell, then you're choosing a prison cell. John spent probably at least a year in that prison cell for not doing anything wrong but telling the truth. That's all he did, just told the truth. Uh, he was killed because a, a, you know, a belligerent, proud ruler made a stupid promise to a young girl. And he got his head cut off. That's wrong. That's unjust. That's, there's the life right there, you know. You're going to choose the, the prison cell of John. It's so wrong. You know, John, John, that, you choose, that John didn't do any miracles that we know of. John never did any. You know, John's, quite frankly, John started off with a bang. But, you know, by the time John was, he was at the end of his ministry, it's not like his church grew or his following grew. He just had a few. So, so he went from pretty big to little, 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 little. And he's dead. A few guys come and throw him in, not throw him, but put him in the tomb. 
This is, do, you want to, do you want that life? You know, this would be a very hard sell, wouldn't it, for the best ad agency in the land <laughs> to, 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 to make that one attractive. And we won't do that, of course, because Jesus doesn't. I will say this, though, about that path. You know, I referred to Luke 7.28 that John was no, no, no man born of a woman greater than John. I, I know you guys know this. You know how that passage actually ends. Luke 7.28 says, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, among those born of women there is no one greater than John. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. What? I thought John was the greatest. What Jesus is saying is that since I've come, since you know, I've been promised thousands of years, but now I've come and I've inaugurated, begun the kingdom of God, the rule of God in the hearts of men, that men who trust, Jesus, who trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, born again, the Spirit lives in them, the kingdom of God resides, the rule of God in the heart of man, one way we look at the kingdom of God, since that has begun... Anyone who trusts me and what I did for them, you see, you're actually greater than John. Now, it's not an issue of value. Please understand, it's a, what I said earlier, John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Among those born of women, in this context, and by the way, this is the time of promise. Everything's being promised in this time of promise. None's greater than John. But now that the fulfillment is here, Jesus has come, has died, been raised. We live in that fulfillment. When anyone believes and trusts Christ, they're greater than John. That was the time of promise. This is the time of fulfillment. This is, it's like Jesus is putting whole new value, you see. Upon the kingdom. I Howard Marshall says this. Jesus is putting membership of the kingdom into its proper perspective. There is something more important than following John. And that is entry into the kingdom. This is the greatest life there is. Well, I said earlier that Mark just puts this story in the weirdest of places to me. When you just take it uh, as it stands. Why did he put it here? Why did he insert the story here? Well, let's take a look at it. Look again at your Bibles, and we'll wrap up in this way. Notice in chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, it's about him sending out the twelve. Verse 7 says, And he summoned the twelve, and he began to send them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Okay, so they're sent out. Now I want you to look at chapter 6, verse 30. Look over at verse 30. It says, The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him, all that they had done. Now everybody look up here. Okay, we've been through this before. So he starts with this he starts with this story. Jesus is sending them out, the 12, gives them authority. And then we come down here and notice at the end of 29 next verse is verse 30, and they got back together and they told each other what had happened. It's like he starts the story, then he puts in this story of John's death. And then he ends the story. What is this in a literary sense? I've said it several times. It's what? A Markin? Yeah, it's the sandwich. Here's the story begins. Something else in the middle of the sandwich. And then he ends it. So we know he did this very, very intentionally. Why put that in the middle of that story? Look at chapter 6, verse 13. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. I've got to believe that the apostles went out two by two. It was lights out. 
They were living the dream. They were touching people and they were healed. They were putting oil. They were exercising. It was, it was amazing. It truly was amazing. And I'm sure when they got back in chapter, in verse 30 and started telling each other, they're going, you're not going to believe what I saw. You're not going to believe what he, oh, and then he did this. And Jesus went on and on. But Mark says, let me put this story between the slices of bread because following Jesus is not always healing and exorcisms. It's also also prison cell, being treated unjustly, losing your life, quite frankly, for the stupidest reason, suffering, hardship, ending with less than you start. You see, this is following Christ. And y'all, I'm not saying anything, you know, we don't know and we're not going to see Jesus say as as we go through Mark's gospel. That's the path. And that's the path of following the servant king. Now, I want you to understand, when we're making our way down and it's like, oh, oh, the birthday party, the prison cell, please know this. This isn't a choice that you and I make out of our own will and strength. This is, this is supernatural. You've got to understand this. The only reason that you and I can take the step and choose the prison cell is because Jesus chose the prison cell for us. You see that? Jesus chose this path. And Jesus chose this path and he suffered and he died and he rose again to show that death will not keep us. Death is not the end. Physical death is only the beginning of life with him forever, you see. And so when we stand here, please note, don't don't choose that path because you're going, I don't want to do it, but I guess I will. We choose that path gladly if we know Christ has chosen it for us. Christ chose that path for me. And Christ in me and his spirit in me enables me to choose and walk that path. Not our own strength. Not our own will. And boy, when you go down that path, I'm going to tell you something. Yes, you may end up in a prison cell, in obscurity, in death. But according to God's word... There's no greater path. Path of influence, significance. For a kingdom that never ceases. I hope that December 7th rolls around and you guys catch glimpses of Time Magazine, the Time Magazine cover. I'll be looking for it too. You know, it's going to pop up. I don't know who it's going to be. But they're going to have a person of the year. And... I hope when we, you and I see that, we see that, and it, it, it causes us to remember. We, we, we go back to know that a life, of, a life that counts, the greatest of lives, is not measured by what someone accomplished, not measured by some, what someone does, per se, as much as it is measured by how much one hears the truth, trusts the truth of the one who accomplished everything. Not about us accomplishing, 
It's about trusting the one who's done everything for us. That's my prayer for you, and it is my prayer for me. Father, thank you for your word today, a a dark story that reminds us following the servant king is the greatest life. But it's not great in the way the world sees it. Not even close. So as we stand at that fork day in, day out, it'll always be there. May we, your people who have trusted you, trust your spirit in us to enable us to choose that path of John's prison cell and turn our back on that path of Herod's party. Thank you for your word entrusted to us. Oh, may we be found faithful, Lord, by your grace. Amen. And God bless.